I'm here with Amber Halliday, who is originally from um, Adelaide, Australia. She's a three-time world champion in rowing and a two-time Olympian, having competed in the Beijing and Athens Olympics. Uh, she has obviously a lot of sporting experience, and I also am aware that she's had some significant injuries that we'll talk a little bit more about. Thanks for joining me, Amber. Thank you for having me. Maybe you can talk a little bit about your background in rowing and how you got into the sport. Um, I was hopeless at ball sports. <laughs> I basically had no hand-eye ball coordination. I tried them all. I loved them all. I loved playing sport. Um, you know, I was sort of okay at cross-country running and then, and then we sort of got old enough at my school to um, have rowing open to us. And um, to tell you the truth, um, uh, one of my more popular friends was rowing and she said, oh, you should come down and, um, you know, you could be a coxswain, which is the little person in the boat that um, gives orders to, to the rowers. And I quite liked the idea of bossing around my more popular friends. And so I, there I was, I went down and I, I coxed for the first year until I like looked at it and thought, yeah, I think I can do that. I think I can do better than what you're doing it yeah. and than how you're doing it. And so, um, and so that's how I began. Yeah. And, and so how old were you when you got into rowing? Uh, about, um, well, hang on. I was in under, under, under 14. So I must've been like, late 12s early 13 we, you can't really get into rowing much earlier than that uh-huh what why is that um i i'm not sure i think it's maybe just the practical um thing of you don't have the strength like you might not have the strength to um to move the oar through the water properly and you might not have the sensibility for water safety and also the boats that you start in are generally the heaviest in the boat shed. Mm -hmm. And so um, like the, the little tackers, especially when they're starting out at, at 13 or 14, they really have trouble holding the boats. I mean, it's probably different these days, but um, when I was starting out, I'd, I started out in the, the wooden tubs and they were heavy. Yeah. So maybe you can talk a little bit more about kind of what, kept you interested and in, in going in, in rowing from your initial experiences? Um, well, I think there was a little bit of history there. Like my dad was a rower. And so I did feel like we had that familial um, connection. Yeah. And I, I really liked it. It was a totally different sport to any other sport that I had done at school. Um, and I found like a, a great sense of peace being on the water. Mm -hmm. And uh, did you compete individually initially or as a team? No, well, we started off in um, in quad skulls, so four people in a boat with a with a cox. Yeah. Um, and then as you grow up through school, you go through the fours, which is different from sculling because you have one oar instead of two oars. And then you go into the eighth, which is the biggest boat um, in rowing. And I was in the first eight. I was lucky to row in the first eight with my sister. And, um, and then in beyond school, I found a pathway through lightweight rowing. Mm -hmm. 
And, and so in rowing, you mentioned lightweight, there's different categories, is there not? Well, there is at the moment. As of um, 2020 or 2021, uh, there will be one um, event, one lightweight event for both men and women at the 2020 Olympics, 2021, 20, you know the ones yeah. I'm talking about, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, there'll be one. And then hopefully Thomas Bark, the head of the IOC, will not um, get rid of that lightweight event for the yeah. next Olympics in 2024. Right. So maybe you can talk a little bit more about some of the progression that you had or your development in rowing from the time that you, you first started to when you became an elite rower. The progression, um, instead of being like that, it was like that. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, I, I had a really tough time actually um, proving myself in the very early days. Um, and I think that was because maybe as a, as a junior, I was on the small side and it took me a while and it took them a while to realise that I might make it as a lightweight. And so I had to struggle through those junior years and um, get to be a lightweight. And then it took me a while to be good. Um, but, um, you know, it was just a matter of finding the right coach, finding the right training program. And I um, found great improvement when I did. Yeah. And so after that, um, you know, I was sort of on a better pathway and I was more like that pathway. Right. So um, what were some of the, the challenges or ups and downs that you referred to in, you know, your earlier years? You said it wasn't really a linear, straightforward path. Why not? No. Uh, well, I, I think the, the coaches and the powers that be, like in rowing in, a, in Australia, things are done through, well, in my state, they are done through the State Sports Institute. In other states, they're done through mainly the pathways through clubs. But in South Australia, where I was, it was done through the South Australian Sports Institute. And the powers that be with, that were in charge of that institute at the time didn't really believe in me, not in the early days at least. They had invested more money into the, the people that they identified through talent rather than the people coming through school. Mm -hmm. And um, and so I feel like I missed out on a few teams and opportunities in the early days because, you know, I might have been close to these talent ID people, but because they had had more money pumped into them, I, um, you know, I I sort of got the bum steer. So, yeah. um, so I think that that was one thing. And the second thing is that I didn't really know myself yet as an athlete. You know, I I look back on it now and I'm like, why did I ever believe that I could? <laughs> you know, but um, but like I said, you know, I feel like I'd got got the the raw end of the stick. Is that a saying? The wrong end yeah. of the stick. Yeah. You know, a few times, and I feel I feel like I was hard done by. Right. Um, a few competitions and teams and and just getting the opportunities that I thought I deserved right. in the early days. So I just I just kept going. Well, what impact did that have on you when you felt like maybe 
the powers that be didn't see your potential? Um, well, it was devastating, and I was I was this close to giving it up because that was the sensible thing to do. You know, when when the powers that that B didn't believe in me and I was starting to doubt myself, you know, the sensible thing to do is just to, to stop this rowing palaver and go to uni and get my degree and go on with my life. But then a, a coach, um, very special coach to me came into my life at that time. And he literally like, almost literally, he picked me up from the, from the ground where I think he did come to my house and I was in my PJs at 1 p.m. You know, still pretty upset about the whole rowing thing. And he, he said, you know, why, why, don't, why don't you come and do some training with me and yeah. we'll do a, pro, a different program. And, you know, I've seen you row and I like, I like the way you row. And so let's, let's do some training together and see what we come up with. Yeah. And so, that, that was a major turning point. Yeah, I, I think that's really interesting that you mentioned at one point you were considering giving up the sport altogether and it, it sounds like you were not particularly happy or in a great frame of mind and then you met this coach and it sounds like obviously that that was I guess impactful uh, uh, in your your journey. Hugely, hugely. He totally changed the course of my life and I'm so grateful to him. <laughs> Right. So what was it that he, he did in, in particular, I guess, to um, change your, your view on your, your potential? Well, I don't think he, he really changed my view on my potential. It was more like him knowing, him sort of thinking the same way that I was. Like, uh -huh. I thought I was good at this rowing thing, but, you know, we're not quite there yet but I think I can get there. And, um, and he came along and said he was thinking the same thing. So, um, so it wasn't quite a change of mind, but what he did do to help me was he listened to me. Mm -hmm. You know, when, when I said, you know, I'm, I'm ready for, come on, Bruy, I'm ready for some more, like give me some more, give me, give me another lap around the lake or, um, no, Bruy, I think I've I've had enough today. I'm a, I'm feeling a bit off. Can can we just call it call it a day? And he would listen to me. Yeah. And um and so that was really important on on reflection. Yeah. And I, I imagine he must have also had competence or expertise in in terms of training and and your development as an athlete as well. Yes. Well, and he was an athlete himself. Um, mm -hmm. he was a lightweight a uh, lightweight rower himself so he had a lot of lightweight tricks and advice to give me and um and also like his he was very intuitive with his training program i don't know how qualified he was in terms of sports science or physiology or or any of that and probably where i was as an athlete in those days i didn't need that level of expertise i just needed someone who believed in me and someone who would listen to me yeah. and um and someone who would give me advice on being a lightweight roller mm -hmm. and and at that point in your career once you found that that individual who was listening to you and, and believing in you what what were some of the things that started to happen in terms of your results or your success in, in competition well in those days it was basically i think it it 
was mainly a winter season that we worked together. And this, um, this winter season really early in my career was quite crucial. And during the winter season, we would do 5K time trials. So five kilometer time trials in, in, our, um, in our home base. Like we were lucky to have a 2K course and then almost 3Ks of um, canals virtually that we would combine together as a 5K, 5K time trial. And yeah. this was um, the, the major metric of, of that, you know, certainly of the off season. And, you know, when I first started with, with this coach, I was, you know, mid, mid-field. Oh, and the other thing is that um, everyone's time was brought down to a problem, prognostic. So it became a percentage of what your own category, um, the, the boat speed that, you're, that is needed for, for your own category. So that means that different boats could be compared, like a double mm-hmm. skull and a single skull and uh, an eight or a four, they could all be compared to each other because it all comes down to a percentage. Yeah. And also heavyweight men could be compared to lightweight woman, heavyweight woman. Everyone could be, everyone was brought down to a percentage. So in at the beginning of this off, uh, this off season, I was about midfield. And then by the end of it, I was topping the, the list. And mm. that was amazing to like you would go do your time trial on a Saturday morning and you'd come back in and you'd probably have enough time for something to eat and maybe a coffee. And, um, and by then the coaches would have printed out the results. And, and so to, to see it pinned up on the boat shed wall and to see my name at the top, that was pretty cool. Yeah. You mentioned before that, you know, even earlier on, you felt like you had some potential in the sport. Did you always know or have as, as an aim that you wanted to be a world champion or to be an Olympian? Yeah, no. never. Oh, well, not, not in those early days. It was, in the early days, it was just about making the state team and getting a red zooty. Like that, a zoot suit is what we wear rowing. And so getting the red zooty was really important. And then, and then it was sort of about, you know, going as far as I could. And then the, that meant that I found myself actually going for the Australian team. And then all of a sudden, like I got into an Australian team and then, and then we went away and we won a world, like a, um, you know, an under 23 world championship. And, and then, you know, it just sort of cascaded from there. And, and I, di- I didn't ever in those days have the, um, belief or the objective of going to the olympics it was just about doing my best yeah and and so it was kind of it sounds like it was sort of this cumulative thing where you would have success at at one level and then um and and then that led to further success or i don't want to put words in your mouth but yeah no it it um it was absolutely like that you know i never let myself believe I I never let myself think too far ahead Mm -hmm. and you know I had self-belief but at at my level and at the next level you know and that's all that that I sort of let myself extend to 
Yeah. And so, you know, when it was, once I got that red zooty for the state team, it was about like maybe going to national trials and doing well. And then it was about getting in the team. And, and then it was about doing well in the team. And then it was about, you know, continuing to the next age group. And then it was about getting into a better boat and then getting into the Olympic category boat remembering that lightweight women only have one boat so winning a world title in a in a lightweight quad skull is not quite as esteemed as winning a world title or rowing in the um the lightweight double skull so it was about you know getting in a better boat and and then eventually once we won the world title in the olympic boat in two years before my first olympic games that's sort of when I thought, yeah, maybe the Olympics is is on the agenda for me. Yeah. So w- would it be fair to say that your goals were very incremental, Amber? Oh, yeah. That's a perfect word. Yeah. Um, and, and then you said it was only when you won, a, this is a senior world championship. In, was that in the double skull? In the Olympic boat, yeah, the Olympic category boat, yeah. Right, that that you then had your eyes kind of set on the possibility of making the Olympics? Yeah, and remember that, like, the, okay, this is, it's scary talking these numbers, but it, this is, this was 2002. And so, you know, four or five years earlier was, it was only four or five years earlier when I was really struggling to get into my state team and my state, um, Institute. So, like, to me, that was a pretty quick pathway um, being in the Olympic boat, winning a world title. And then, so that's why it only dawned on me then that it was like, oh, maybe the Olympics is a possibility. Yeah. I mean, that sounds like a pretty remarkable progression to, like you say, sort of, you know, make that kind of progress in, in, in such a short period of time. What, would you say you were surprised by your own success or not necessarily? Um, yeah, so sometimes, but it, it seems, I don't know, it's hard to say looking back on it, you can look at it both ways. You can, you know, remember the, your career compressed and go, yeah, that, that was a pretty good quick progression. And, but then you can, you know, remember the daily, grind and then go yeah no it wasn't so wasn't so yeah yeah. I guess it depends on sort of how you think of time or sort of as you say kind of what time frame you're thinking of Uh, and maybe you can talk a little bit about I I know in the lead up to the Athens Olympics you had an injury and maybe you can talk a little bit about uh, that that experience yeah well it it was it's tragic <laughs> it's a bloody tragedy um because what like we were really well placed coming into the olympics that first olympics well we were i was well placed coming into both olympics but especially that first olympics um my uh double partner and i had been together for several years and we had won the world championship in 2002 we got the silver medal in 2003 2004 was going to be our year, um, but she got injured, like a a pretty significant career-stopping injury. Mm. 
and and then I it took me a while to to scrape myself off the floor again and you know I went to trials that year and I was I was flying like I had one of the best times um that trials that any lightweight woman in Australia had done so I was going well there was another um like rowing partner who was very good quality like um her name was Sally Newmart she had been to the Olympics twice before so we ended up in the double scale together and you know it was it was still looking good despite the fact I had lost my um my partner from the previous Olympiad but anyway so got got selected in the boat going to my first Olympic team and at a hundred days to go before the Olympics I was riding my bike to training as I often did and there was a car who underestimated my speed and came out and I just went into her passenger side door and um, ended up likely breaking ribs and really damaging my preparation a hundred days to go before the Olympics that's one of the, the times where you need to go into a hard training um, training phase and I missed that hard training phase. Yeah. But I'm so glad I made it to the start line. Right. So I want to just talk a little bit more about um, some of the events surrounding both your injury, but also you mentioned your, your partner had a serious injury. What, what happened to her? Well, the the... Which partner, like my yeah. my Olympic partner, like with injuries yeah. are everywhere in, in rowing. And right. unfortunately, a lot of them come from being on the bike. Um, and which which mine did at, um, at 100 days to go. And then just when I was starting to come good, um, my double partner, um, Sally Newmarch, she had a, a bike accident or she just fell off the bike um, when we were training up in the Swiss Alps. And she, you know, like rowers' ribs are really important. And even if you just damage them a little bit, you know, it puts you back out. And um, and so she, you know, had um, had was carrying this injury as well for the last part of our last chance heavy training period up there in the Swiss Alps. Okay. Was your injury prior to hers or was hers yes. before yours? So I'm 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 confusing the story. So the the timeline of it goes and they're both called Sally, my my rowing partners. Sally Corsby was my great partner that I rode with for the previous Olympiad. She got injured um pretty early on in 2004. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, we had the trials, which were about March, April um, trials, got picked with Sally Newmarch. Um, ha- I had the the car, uh, like the bike accident where a car ploughed into me. Um, that was 100 days to go before the game. So what would have that been like May or something? And then like probably... Um, June, July is when we were training up in the Swiss Alps. I was coming good and Sally Newmarch fell off her bike and (laughs) we were both um, limping to the start line of Athens. Yeah. So it was a while ago, but 
do you recall what was going through your mind when you had your bike accident? It sounded like it was just sort of bad timing or wrong place at the wrong time. Yeah, I um, I remember I felt I was winded from the impact, but I was so I was straining to get out and yell at this driver. I'm going to the Olympics. I'm going to the Olympics. How do you like you know? I can't believe you did this. I'm going to the Olympics, and yet it it probably came out as oh, I'm going to the Olympics. And um and she I think she gathered what I was trying to say, and she thought that I was going um for cycling. But anyway, it it um it took it took me a while to um accept it because you know I had never been really seriously injured before. I mean, I'd in rowing, everyone's pretty much everyone's um, got a sore back or sore ribs occasionally. And that's all I had to deal with. Um, right. I, I think I had plantar fasciitis from running too much um, as a rower, but, you know, there was nothing this major. And this, this was, this was like a major injury that I, it took me a while to come to terms with that. Yeah. So like, what what happened in the immediate aftermath you go to the hospital or or maybe you can kind of just walk, walk well it wasn't what, what happened it it was a bad accident but i was conscious it wasn't really a hospital job um i don't remember there being an ambulance i think i just called my parents it was very close to their house um and which i was still living at at the time yeah. And so they came down and we went straight to Sports Med, which is a, um, it, it's got a hospital attached to it, but it's a day clinic full of physios and, um, you know, all the allied health professionals. Yeah. And where, where I go to um, see a physio, or I did at the time. And so we went straight there and the doctor um, sort of, sat me down and said, well, I think it's likely that you've got six bruised ribs, but they're, you know, it's bruised. That means six to eight weeks of modified training. I don't want you running. I don't want you on a bike. I just want you on the um, the recumbent bike, which is like the bike that you do in a seat yeah. for the next four weeks at least. And so I was going, oh my God, I have to do a recumbent bike for two times two or three times a day for the next four weeks how boring but um you know i was also grateful that the timeline worked out that you know i might just make it back in time okay so you, you also mentioned that there was some difficulty accepting what had happened like was that you know something that you were able to sort of wrap your mind around within a few days a week or or was it a longer process um well it i guess it it was in the next week that i sort of the gravity of the situation came down and i had a few low moments but then there wasn't really time to wallow you know i had to i had to get moving and and move on because i had this deadline of the games yeah. and it mm -hmm. only just worked out that you know with with the recovery you know it, it I would only just make it back in time. And it was, it was so, I was cutting it so fine that um, 
they want they like wanted me to compete at the world cup which is sort of the warm-up um competition to the either the world champs or the olympic games and it's usually about six weeks before and yep. it's in switzerland the last world cup is is usually in switzerland and it, but instead of um rowing the double skull there they had me like they rowing australia had me race the single skull there um and so that was sort of like an in-between it that was a a major progression in getting back into the double um yeah. i think their reasoning was the the single skull you you sort of move you don't have to move as quick because it's not as a faster moving boat as a double mm -hmm. skull mm -hmm. so the single skull you can sort of and you can get away with a few of your your own idiosyncrasies about your technique yeah. in the single skull, but you can't really in the double skull. So that that was the important stage, and like I felt like I only just made it. Mm -hmm. So, <coughs> excuse me. Did you still have, I guess, some hope or optimism? You know, you mentioned you had this accident a hundred days out, and and then you had to modify your training with the recumbent bike. Was there still some sense of optimism that, okay, I, I can still do this? Or, you know, did your kind of thoughts and emotions maybe change over that period of time? The, the expectation totally shifted. It, it had shifted, you know, back at the beginning of the year when I lost Sally Corsby to a, a major injury. Yeah. And um, it, it became less about, an Olympic medal and more just about well getting to the Olympics. Right. Um, right. Although I'd, I'd even even back then it wasn't so much about the Olympic medal. It was still about getting to the Olympics. But it it was it it was like when I lost Sally Corsby, it was like losing a leg, mm -hmm. and so I still had to make it to the Olympics even with one leg. Yeah. And um, and so I made it in the team and then had you know got got another leg back being in the team with sally newmarch and then um and then it was like losing a, uh the other leg mm. so it was it was generally i'm losing the plot here is it's about a shift in expectations yeah. like instead of focusing on being at the olympics and having a result at the finish line it became so much more about being at the Olympics and lining up on the start line. Right. Was that sort of a hard shift in expectations to make or to come to terms with? Because it sounded, you know, like you said, in the lead up, you had, you were world champion. Um, then you won the silver medal the year prior. You were going gangbusters from the sounds of it. And, and then you sort of had your, your partner getting injured, your own injury. Um, was that difficult to kind of shift those expectations? Probably not really, because I didn't get too carried away with thinking about the finish line anyway. Uh, I didn't get too carried away with being in the Olympic team when I wasn't yet in the Olympic team. And then I didn't really have a lot of time in between making the Olympic team um, and my own accident to to think too much about results or or anything. It was just about making the best of the situation yeah. and then bike accident happened and so it was all about making the start line right so it like would you say that your your thinking was sort of just more 
kind of proximate or short term because you know like in this case after your injury you didn't have too much time i guess as you said to sort of wallow in your sorrows or um yeah um yeah i, I, I don't know I, if that was a statement <laughs> well uh, yeah i i'm not sure like on reflection the the timing yeah, I, I don't know what you're trying... Can yeah. you ask a question again? Yeah. I'm sure. I, I guess I, I'm just wondering whether... Um, it sounded like your thinking was a little bit kind of short-term always. And, and I'm wondering if that's the case, like in, in terms of your goals or, um, you know, like you said that it wasn't so hard to modify your expectations. And I wonder if that's a function of the fact that you weren't thinking too far ahead into the future. Yeah, well, on, on reflection in my career, I'm, it, it's as though I never let myself think too far ahead because I didn't want my expectations to get too high and then come in below. Like I'm, I'm a person, it, it's sort of my style to, to set low expectations and then exceed them yeah. or to try and exceed them. So, right. you know, I, I'm not like an aim for the stars sort of person. Um, and then see where I get. I'm like a, what is realistic? What is scientifically possible? Like, let's study these race times and these ergo times and, and what is absolutely realistic? Okay, how can I exceed it? Um, and so I guess, like, to put it in another way, I quite, I quite often use this um, mountain climbing anal anal analogy. So imagine that, uh, an Olympic um, an Olympic team or an Olympic medal is the top of a mountain and it you know when you're first starting out at, in the elite sport pathway you're right at the bottom of the mountain and I was the sort of climber who would look at the top of the mountain and get a little bit intimidated by it and so I'd go no okay I'm just going to make it to that ledge over there okay back focus down here one foot in front of the other and I'll make it to that ledge and then you know but that doesn't mean that I can't ever allow myself to look up at the top but I would look up at the top and just go okay you know let's go to that ledge let's go to yeah. the next ledge yeah one foot in front of the other right so it sounds like again for you just segmenting things was sort of your approach to things right like breaking breaking down the mountain into smaller components or pieces yeah absolutely like i um yeah i mean dreaming was a part of it dreaming yeah. about your goals and but it wasn't a big part right not for me and and so going back to this period where you you know had the injury with the or the crash with the car and your ribs are bruised and you're modifying your training what happens then in the days and weeks before the Olympics, and maybe you can talk a little bit about what happened at the Olympics. Uh, I'm sorry, you cut out a, oh, just a sorry. little bit there in yeah. the. the um... so, I'm just curious, kind of, if you can talk a little bit more about kind of the progression after your uh, injury with with the car or your car crash you said you started training on the recumbent bike and so then and then also I guess you went to um, you competed in the single uh, uh, single skull right so I'm just yeah. wondering if you can talk a bit about 
kind of what else happened before the Olympics and then maybe describe what happened at the Olympics? Yeah, well, I, I think it was probably the fact that we were on quite a tight deadline that made the timeline of this all quite, um, quite crucial and like there wasn't a lot of wiggle room and that, that was helpful in a way because I didn't, I didn't, I couldn't afford to lose my motivation and to skip too many sessions on the recumbent bike because it just wasn't the time to make up that training. Yeah. And, um, and, you know, as you would be aware, rowing is um, a sport that requires so much training. And um, so anyway, it was, it was just about getting, uh, I felt a lot of it was just getting the training in, yeah. especially because, you know, my partner was out there on the lake with the reserve doing the Ks and I had to do like as much as I could um, in my modified training. So that kept me on track um, for those weeks where I was out of the boat. And then it was just about gently easing myself back into, um, you know, doing, doing sit-ups or pulling this weight or, you know, um, working on the TheraBand in this way and then maybe getting into the single skull in training and very gently doing 4Ks, 8Ks, you know, 12Ks. And, um, and because I had seen so many rowers have rib stress fractures before, like not from, not from impact like my um, injury was, but they, um, rib stress fractures in rowing is huge. And I think it just comes from like having imbalanced muscles or something rather, you give yourself a stress fracture. And I had seen, and basically my recovery protocol was the same as I had seen everyone else go through. And I had seen a number of, of girls come back from rib stress fractures too quickly. Mm-hmm. And that meant that they just, they were sent backwards. Yeah. And their recovery ended up longer. And I knew that I couldn't afford to, to have many of those um, failures. Yeah. And so that was something keeping me super responsible and not getting carried away with um, with wanting to do too much or being too brave to to put up with pain. It was just about listening to my body and um, paying attention to what it was telling me. Yeah. And, you know, it sounds like having some of those role models or previous examples, was that helpful for you in, in terms of not getting ahead of yourself? Yeah, absolutely. And like, I looked at their mistakes and that's what helped me not make the same mistakes as them. I mean, I'm, uh, like I said, I had seen it so many times before where somebody goes back into training from a Ruby injury too quickly. And in a sport like rowing, it's, it's, you just can't get away with it. Right. By the same token, did you have any concerns about what the modified training would mean for your ability to compete? Um, well, yeah, sure. I, I did. Why wouldn't you? But I didn't pay too much. I didn't give it too much time because it was something that I couldn't change. I couldn't control it. So I just, by that stage of my career, I had learned not to spend too much thinking time on the uncontrollables. And Mm -hmm. that was, uh, that was an uncontrollable, um, 
regret and what ifs, they're all uncontrollable and they're all pointless. Yeah. So, I mean, that's interesting. I guess, you know, you said that that was something you learned how to do. Is that right? Yeah. Well, but by that stage in my career, like you don't always start off knowing that. I mean, I'm, I hope that many young athletes do know that straight off the bat. Um, and I think that's really important. But after a while, you you get to know yourself. Yeah, yeah. that's it. It is pointless worrying about things that you can't control. Right. So, and and we being a rower, you really get close to your limit of energy expenditure in day to day training. Like, there's just not a lot left over for anything, particularly about worrying about things that you can't control. Yeah. So you, you mentioned, Amber, the importance of learning to know your body and listen to your body. I like how you phrased that. And I'm wondering if, um, you know, pain management or, or kind of understanding your pain was important in helping you manage your injury or in this case, kind of effectively recover, you know, to get back for the Olympics. Yeah, well, well, pain management is an interesting term because, like, and we tended to talk about pain as good pain or bad pain. Like, the good pain was the pain in the quads that you, you got after, like, a really hard 500-metre piece or that really, like, dull aching after a really hard week of the training program or... Um, or the DOMS that you get after doing a new weight circuit. Um, but bad pain is the, the twinge, the, the little ache, the, 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 the um, something funny happening with your joints or a little strain that is like, oh, no, that didn't feel right. It didn't feel right. Pain in my quads from physical expenditure <laughs> feels right. Yeah. But a, a little tweak in my back or my ribs or my intercostal muscles or something, we, we had to pay attention to stuff like that and, mm -hmm. you know, maybe modify our training straight off the bat. Like, you know, I would, I would say to my coach, you know, like I, like I said, everyone in rowing has, um, almost everyone in rowing has back problems. And, um, and like, so when I felt that twinge, I would have to, get up the, the courage actually to to tell my coach no I I don't think I'll do this last 10 minute piece on the ergo the, the ergo is very hard on on my back and um so no sorry Adrian I don't think I've, I've got this twinge I don't think I should do the last 10 minutes on on the um ergo how about I go for a run or do it on the exercise bike instead or yeah. something rather and um, so yeah, I guess we, <laughs> I've gone a long way from pain management, but it, being aware of your own body and having the courage to, to speak up about it, I yep. think is very key in a sport like rowing particularly. Yeah. Well, I want to pick up on that point about having the courage to speak up in a sec, but it also sounds like y you would have descriptors or adjectives to describe or differentiate the good pain that you mentioned from the bad pain. And, but I wonder if that's important or it almost sounds like it has value in, you mentioned 
what, when you could describe your pain as like a twinge or tweak or like um, something like that, that that would then lead to modifications in the training. Yeah. Whereas if it was considered or described as more of a good pain, that that might be something that you could then just continue to train through. Is that yeah, yeah. No, that that's exactly exactly right. I never really thought about it in that way, but yeah, we like words like um, even like burning, like that that was good pain because mm -hmm. you you burned in your lungs, you your quads burned, your 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 arms and your lats burnt, or or whatever. Especially when you're getting to like the last rep of of your set or something or other, you just that was part of pushing through the the good pain. Yeah, and um. But yeah, it's words like twinge and tug and like a strange sort of feeling or a um, like an a discomfort. Um, you know, those sorts of descriptors are the ones that um, were tending to describe the bad pain. Yeah, would you say then, Amber, that it's almost helpful for the injured athlete to be able to describe their pain or to classify it or categorize it so that they have a sense of what's what they should be pushing through what what they need to back off from yes absolutely and i totally got my pain vocabulary not from my coach but from talking with other athletes and talking with my physio yeah she she was quite insightful my physio i was really lucky to see um who someone was based in my hometown who was actually a, a rowing Australia national um, team physio. And so she had a really good vocab about pain and bodily sensations. And, you know, she would sort of, she, she knew where rowers tended to hurt anyway and what was good pain and what was bad pain. She had built up that knowledge. And it was also about finding words um, from from other athletes as well, you know, talking about our own pain and what, what was what was bad. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, I, and I like that term pain vocabulary or being able to develop it through interactions with people like a knowledgeable physiotherapist or, or teammates who have similar experience. I, I also thought it was interesting. You mentioned the courage, I guess, to, you know, speak up about your pain. And, you know, I'm wondering if, in, in rowing, I'm, I imagine there's sort of a culture of training through or pushing through pain. Would that be accurate? Uh, yes. Yeah. Yes. There, Would that be there an, is... an understatement based on your reaction? <laughs> um, I, I can't imagine it would be too much different in, in other sports. But, I mean, rowing is a sport, like I said, that requires a lot of training and you feel tired you feel at your limit most of the time um it 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 is so it's incredibly hard in that way um but i'm sorry what was the question again well yeah i was just asking kind of about the culture of i guess yeah rowing and, so, and, and, and in terms of um in terms of speaking like listening to your own body and speaking up for the bad pain that you would be feeling like i guess in one way you had to be confident enough in your in your own insight into your own body mm -hmm. to do that and then you had to 
remind yourself that this is better for the long term to speak up now and to save myself a, an injury that might cause me to lose a week of training or a week out of the boat or or whatever with a sore back it's better to speak up now than than do that and so you and then you just had to ignore the fact that you didn't you in a sense you weren't keeping up with your teammates mm -hmm. because you're not doing the same amount of them on the ergo and the ergo being the rowing rowing the rowing machine yeah. um so in a sense you weren't keeping up with them and that that was one of the hardest things that i had to let myself um come to terms with or that's one of the hardest things i had to come to terms with is the fact that i might not be keeping up with my teammates because i might be you know listening to my body and and i just really i'm going to save myself a week out of the boat if i speak up to my coach now and yeah. say right so did you feel pressures at times to keep up with your teammates and if so was that an internal pressure or more was it more external in nature uh it was both but it particularly came from um i mean my coach had really good results with our um category i think because he was so hard on us and he had us train next to each other like we trained most of the time in single skulls and we trained next to each other on these this lake and he would make us he would cap our rating at something unbelievably low like so if you imagine a rowing boat paddling you know they're probably rating about 20 strokes a minute 18 20 strokes a minute um he would have us go down to 14 and just rip it through the water trying to compete with each other to get to the finish line first on this 2k stretch that we had for our training um our training lake mm -hmm. and so there was a lot of um a lot of quiet rivalry respectful quiet rivalry in amongst the training squad mm -hmm. and um and he knew that he he kept a big training squad and at the end of the day everyone's going for two seats at the olympics yeah. so um so yeah we it was interesting it was an interesting dynamic but ultimately it made us all better having to compete with each other right um i guess it also sounds like it was something i guess in the case of injury where you had to be cognizant of uh, not pushing yourself too much in certain instances as well yeah, I th I think there were certain things about um, my coach's training program at the time that were really they they could easily inflame uh, an injury that was like a back injury or a rib injury, and that was um, the amount of ergos he had us do on the land in the afternoons and in the mornings. It would be the low rating stuff that he would have us do, uh, like he basically made us rate low because he wanted our he wanted us to practice rowing hard through the water but he didn't want us to be like at a really high heart rate for a, the majority of the training so the majority of the training was like rip it through the water but then you just have to come forward so slowly that you're only going to be rating 14 strokes a minute mm -hmm. so um it was an interesting philosophy like it 
it did work in a lot of ways, but it's very hard on your back and ribs. Right. And um, just going back again to the lead up to Athens. So you had that modified training and, and maybe you can talk a little bit about kind of what happened prior to the games and talk about your experience at the Olympics. Um, well, prior, prior to the games, like I said, the, the tight timetable just kept me on track, kept mm. me on track four weeks solidly on the recumbent bike. And then it was like a two week gentle transition of like eventually making it back into the boat. And then I had, I can't remember, like maybe I had a week or half a week of training in the single mm. skull. Um, I don't remember going anywhere near the ergo at this stage. Um, but it was like trading in the single skull and just getting back up to speed and then perhaps doing like a 500 meter piece before we left for overseas and then getting to Lucerne where I was going to, this was the, the final world cup before the Olympics and I was to compete in the single skull and then it was just about like not embarrassing myself in the single skull because everyone who you were going to compete against at the Olympic Games was there in the double skull and they were looking at you in the single skull going, yeah, will, will that Australian crew ever make it to the start line at the Olympics, you know? And so anyway, ended up with a bronze medal in the, um, in the single skull at that World Cup. So that was very reassuring. Um, and, and then it was just a matter of like, okay, I think, you know, that, that was the stage where I could almost ramp up to full training um, up there in the Swiss Alps. And, and then my partner had her accident. So it was like, mm. oh, come on. And so I think by that stage, I had lowered my expectations so much that I, like, I was just happy to be on the start line right. at Athens. Yeah. And, and then talk a little bit, if you would, about what happened at Athens. <clears throat> Yeah, well, we were, um, you know, first first Olympic race and first first race together, actually. Sally and I had not rode the double very much. We had never raced before. In previous seasons, we'd never, I don't think we'd even seat raced together in a, in a double skull mm -hmm. together. So this was our first race and it was a massive tailwind um, and a lot of people were worried about, too much water coming in the boat so we had all these plastic sort of protective things around the boat and um and I was like oh you know what what is this going to be did did our race and we won in a world's best time hmm. so that was pretty pretty cool and like I don't think it ever really hit me um, I mean by the time it hit me we were we were rowing the semi-final um which was also a massive tailwind and um and we won that and you know so it was like oh you know maybe we're being a semi-final winner you are traditionally looked at in the final as one of the favorites and then we we line up for the final and it's dead flat and i think that's that's where our lost training caught up with us um because it was less about technique and it was more about brute force and strength and fitness mm -hmm. and um and we didn't have that so we came forth mm. 
So in, in the, a couple of the preliminary heats, you broke a world record uh, and, and then you won the semifinals. I guess before the, the finals, were you starting to think, oh, you know, things are looking pretty good here or things are looking up? Or I guess what was your mindset kind of going into the, the finals? To, to tell you to tell you the truth like I don't remember thinking much that one way or the other like being a lightweight rower a lot of your thoughts are taken up by being hungry and by food and by managing your weight leading up to the race so that's a really good I considered it like an anxiety management technique um, that because so much, so many of my thoughts would be around that. I didn't actually ruminate on the on the race, or you know, think too too far ahead with with possibilities about racing that much because I was just I was hungry, yeah. <laughs> and um, and and so maybe, but maybe we we did get interviewed by a TV crew outside. Um, the the accommodation where we were staying we were staying out near the rowing course not in the village at that stage and um and this this tv crew was interviewing us and i think they brought up gold medal favorites um the term gold medal favorites and i was like ah yeah you know and so and that made me think a little bit but then I went back to my room and went back to being hungry and started dreaming about what I was going to eat after the next race. So yeah. um, it was, you know, something that just passed, passed by. Right. So, you know, I obviously being in a, a hungry state, uh, you know, can have a way of directing your focus. Uh, yeah. And it's interesting because you say that that was actually an anxiety management technique. So sort of, keeping your focus just on something very specific or tangible like food, as opposed to all the what ifs. Um, how, how did it feel, I guess, coming forth? Was that a moment of um, satisfaction? Was it, you know, did you, it sucked. Yeah, how, would, how did you describe, how would you describe it? It sucked. Um, like I, it, it, in rowing, you, you have six lanes in a race and so you know and when you come first second or third in a final you row up to the pontoon to get your medal after the next race has has passed like rowing in world cups in world champs in olympic games they stick to this schedule all the time and because like i guess we had i had had so much success leading up to the games um there was not once that i remember having to row away without rowing up to the pontoon and getting my medal so even you know even just before at the world cup in the single skull i still you know rowed finished the race and then you row up to the pontoon and collect your medal so yeah. the the other when you have to row away we i i think some of us called it the row of shame and um and so that was the first time i actually had to do the row of shame coming forth at the olympic games after being gold medal favorites and we um we rode around the corner on this row of shame and it was very mm -hmm. silent between sally and i because we were just in shock and um 
and then you know a, a TV crew or a media crew um, stopped us and and wanted to interview us and I was like I guess I was I'm I'm pretty happy about like the the pain and the raw emotion that I was feeling at the time didn't and the, and the bitterness that I would later come to feel about my accident, about Sally's misfortunes, about, you know, my other Sally's loss and everything. None of that came through in this, in this um, exchange between this reporter and us. And I was just so glad that I had the frame of mind to say, you know, we're just, we're just so happy that we made the start line. This, yeah. this regatta, we're so happy we made the start line. And that's what it came down to. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that was, we were still in shock at that stage. And I think, you know, it took me almost the, the whole second week of the games of um, just wallowing and feeling sorry for myself to, to actually, you know, realise, wow, I'm at the Olympics. My competition is done. It's just partying from now. It's being with my friends. It's, it's, um, celebrating the last four years, four years plus of, um, of training. And it took me, it took me a while to get to that point. Yeah. But, yeah, that yeah. I, I mean, it, it sounds like, you know, you mentioned kind of bitterness, I guess, over things that had happened and, um, kind of after the, um, yeah, I, I guess, it was not easy, I imagine, to kind of come to terms with that. Would that be right? Yeah, it it um it was hard. It definitely changed my career direction. Mm. I'm sure if I had uh well actually I'm not sure, but if we had got a medal that day, I wonder whether I would have gone another four years. But because we just missed out, I thought you know, I can't stop, I can't stop on this. Yeah. You know, I, there's no, there's no money, there's no glory in rowing. So, you know, when you're 24, which is what I was at the Athens Olympics, you, you need to think seriously about your career and moving forward with your life and maybe looking at having a, having children or something in the next Olympiad. But after that result, I was like, I can't walk away from this now. Yeah. So it still it left you with the feeling that 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 wasn't the way you could kind of end your career, or was that like you know you talked before that you weren't very long term in your thinking? Were, was there some part of you that thought, okay, well, if this goes well, that'll be the end of my career, and, and then that didn't happen, and so it changed your frame of mind, or not necessarily? Yeah, no, I, I hadn't really thought explicitly about it, um, but I think I um I'm not sure. I I just I think my goal, rather than having a goal in rowing to like win a world championship or to make you know however many teams or to make three Olympic Games or to, you know, win an Olympic medal, which, you know, sort of was the goal, winning an Olympic medal, but it, it came down to reaching my potential. Yeah. So 
when I realised, like when we set a world's best time in the heat and when we won the semi, my, the, my potential, like looking at the facts scientifically, my potential was winning a, 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 an Olympic medal. Yeah. But I didn't reach my potential when it mattered. Right. And, um, and so, like, I guess because I hadn't achieved that result of reaching my potential, um, you know, that's what made me firm up on the, the idea of her going for another four years. Right. So the fact that it was kind of potential unrealized was yeah. what kind of crystallized in your mind the fact that, you know, you, you wanted to continue for another four years and, and kind of right that wrong, if, if that would be the right expression. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so um, you did compete in, in a second Olympics, right? What um, I imagine, of course, there are a lot, a lot that can happen in, in a four year timeframe, but um, maybe, maybe you could, just summarize some of your highlights between you know what happened in, in the next four years in terms of some of your successes uh, during that period um yeah well i guess the next four years was pretty straightforward a lot of our strong squad from the previous olympiad had moved on or fallen off the or retired or gone by the wayside or whatever or they, they had gone on with their careers and having children and everything like that. But I had hung around and there was um, pretty much only one um, potential uh, world-class athlete left in, us in, in the lightweight landscape in Australia. And so she and I ended up in a boat together. We trained together um, in my home base of Adelaide and we... Um, I had a year off in 2005, um, so I wasn't around in 2005. She rode with another girl and did averagely at the World Champs. And then I came um, back and made the team with her in the double skull in 2006. We won a silver medal. Um, 2007, we won a gold medal. This is at the World Championships. Um, so, again, not exposed to the role of shame. Um, and then uh, at uh, for the Olympic year, there uh, it just it felt differently. It, our coach went a little bit crazy about his training. I actually did the training. You know, I didn't have those moments where I had to stand up to to him and say, "Look, that's enough. I've got a tweak." You know, it basically came down to the ergos that we were doing in training. They were mm -hmm. on um, these sliders, mm -hmm. which made it easier on your back. So it was a, it's, it was overall a good thing to train on the, when you're training on the ergo, to do yeah. it on these sliders. And it was a lot more like the feeling in the boat. And, and it also, it helped my back ache. It helped my back not ache or twinge so much. And so I did everything on the program that year. And, you know, we went to our, um, our coach and sort of said, we're just, we're just tired. We're moving slow. You know, let's, can we change up the program? He said, no, we went to a head coach at the, um, in Australia, the head coach 
literally went like this mm. and said, there's no controlling your coach, Amber. He's a, you know, he's a Romanian so-and-so. No, there's no controlling him. And I think it would, I think there was controlling him, but they just didn't really care about us. Or I don't know why, because we were world champions at the time and we were saying, this doesn't feel right. This doesn't feel like last year did. Anyway, and then we went to the Olympics and we just, we had a bad row in the semi-final and didn't even make the final. And so you attribute that just to overload too much training, not, not having enough energy or, or what happened? Yeah, well, I, all I can do is compare 2007 to 2008 and 2007 um, was in 2007 something strange happened actually at the Lucerne Regatta which is the lead up the the World Cup lead up to the world champs um, they thought that I had glandular fever and so I had to take some time away from my coach and remain down at sea level um, in Italy, while my partner and, and the coach went up to the Swiss Alps for altitude training. And I stayed down for a, a few weeks um, in Italy while the test came back and while they sort of figured out what, what was happening with me. I mean, ultimately, I still don't know what was going on. I just felt really fatigued and awful at that stage. But, you know, I had this week down in Italy, which was great, <laughs> away from my coach and my teammate. And then, um, and then, went back up, got stuck back into training, and we went and win, won the World cha Championship. So I wonder whether that week off, essentially, had anything to do with our performance at the World Championships. Mm -hmm. um, like maybe maybe for those last two years, he was overtraining us and he wouldn't listen to us when we said, we're not feeling great. You know, maybe we don't need this much. Um, and I, at the time, I like in the Olympic year, I was 28. So, you know, there I was saying to him, like, I don't need as much, I don't feel as though I need as much training as I did as a 22-year-old, as a 24-year-old. Right. Like, can you please back off? Can I please have some time to myself for, you know, some, some alternate training sessions? Yeah. And, um, and he wouldn't listen to me. So yeah. we ended up uh, second in the B final, which is overall eighth. Mm -hmm. and, and so, you know, I, I guess after that experience, how, how does it leave you feeling, I guess, at, at the end of it, you know, in, in 2008? What's your mindset, I guess, after the, um, I imagine, disappointing, if that would be the right well, I, I can't, I can't use too many bad words here, can I? Um, but yeah, pretty, pretty annoyed, pretty frustrated, disappointed. I was, um, I was very frustrated. No one would listen to me, um, and you know, I feel, in retrospect, I at the time I wasn't sure, but in retrospect, I can see it so clearly now. Um, you know, if he had, if my coach, if, if the powers that be at Rowing Australia, the head coach, if they had listened to us, like, I'm sure it would have been a different result. But at the time, we weren't super confident, like, we weren't confident enough 
to really push it and we didn't really have the power to because um you know in rowing you don't have the power to fire your coach um and it's it's really funny because we have athlete liaison officers at um the olympic games which is where and another like a high profile athlete maybe from a non-olympic sport comes in and just acts as a um a sort of conduit between the the australian olympic committee and athletes and whatever and we had a we had the captain of the australian cricket team steve war there and we were we were telling him at the olympics what we think might have happened with our race and our previous year and you know we were saying how um no one would listen to us when we said that he was training us too hard and and he his um his idea this this cricketer's idea was oh couldn't you couldn't you just fire him and it was like no steve no we can't fire our coach we are not the professional athlete that you are in cricket um and unfortunately we had no power right and and so you know i i guess kind of in terms of your path or your trajectory then what you know what happens at that point because i I know you said in 2004 you felt like okay i can't this isn't how i want to finish off my career and sound like you still have the drive to go for another four years what about in 2008 2008 well i um i think i was at a different stage in my life as well i was engaged to someone at the time um who was expecting me to stop after that Olympics and we would we would then you know get married and have babies and and whatever and um and I think you know I just came home I was so bitter I was you know I was sort of um searching I guess for a short term shorter term therapy to get me through that that hard stage of coming home a loser mm. in my mind um and so i joined the cycling team mm. in um in sassy in our sports institute in south australia it was pretty easy to go sideways you know you would see coaches of other sports in the the lab or in the ergo room or in the gym um you know you could speak to the sports scientist that took care of you as a rower and sort of discuss with him about going to a sport like cycling and what would it take and anyway so i found myself going over to cycling um and pretty quickly doing well there and i liked cycling it was a good therapy in that it was exercise it helped me um through like a an awful stage for lightweights which is returning home from overseas on race weight all skinny and like strong and then <clears throat> and then you go through an off season where you um you know you, you do have the potential to stack on the weight and you feel awful and so it helped me through that it was really good um social interaction with other athletes that you didn't really get in rowing in rowing it was all business and you couldn't really chat as you were training in in a rowing boat where you're looking at somebody's the back of somebody's head um and you were too puffed to talk 
And so I really enjoyed cycling for those um, reasons. And I ended up going a bit further in cycling, um, you know, just to see what I could do. Yeah. And, and I know in terms of your cycling career, you had some success, but I also know you had some traumatic injury as well. Maybe you can speak to um, both your success and, and the injury that you incurred. Yeah, well, the, the success was sort of cool. Um, I, won a tour, I won a tour in, um, in 2009, I think, of New Zealand. And, you know, I was pretty much set on time trialling because I didn't like being in the peloton, you know, too many moving parts, too many things I couldn't control and, and too much potential for danger. And so I liked time trial. And, um, and so I, um, I won a national title in time trial um, a couple of years into the cycling thing. And, um, and so, you, you know, that was, that was kind of cool, and um, I thought I might uh, make it to the world champs, which in that year were in Australia, and I was pretty keen on that because I was a bit young for the Sydney Olympics, and so I wasn't ever trying out for the Sydney Olympics. Um, but, you know, that was cool to have a home games or a home, like we never had home World Cups in Australia yeah. or but to have a, a cycling world champs that was at home in 2010, like that, that was cool. That became my new aim, but they didn't pick me. And so I thought up yours, um, mm -hmm. I'm just going to do this one last race, yeah. which was a, a race that was that women's cycling was trying to get profile um, through this race, which was sort of run in par parallel to a high profile tour. It's called the Tour Down Under. Yeah. Um, in Australia. And so I thought, I'll just do that. And then I'm going to go back to rowing and try and see if I can make the London Olympics. And I had a bad crash, like a really, it was so stupid. Like I don't remember it at all, um, but it was on a flat track that was closed to all traffic. It was like one of the safest sort of situations you could be in. And I just, I, I fell awkwardly and I landed on my temple and ended up with bleeding on the brain, a traumatic brain injury, or I think it was classed as a severe traumatic brain injury. And I, um, my optic nerve on this left side got uh, messed up and, you know, this mm -hmm. whole left side does, still doesn't move properly almost 10 years on. Mm -hmm. And um, at the time I was in an induced coma for a few days in ICU and then they had me in the hospital for two months. Um, a month of that, I couldn't remember because I was in post-traumatic amnesia. And then towards the end of the two months in hospital, it was only then that I started to grasp that this wasn't like a serious injury, like rowing serious injury, where you're out of the boat for four to six weeks and then on modified training or whatever, it was, like a lifelong injury. What what impact has it had on your life? Well, it changed changed it. Mm. It it stopped all um, my my career. Uh, gonna make me cry. Mm. It's it changed everything. Mm. Um, and I, I, it seems like it's still hard to speak about. Um, 
do you have any recollection of some of your first thoughts when you were in the hospital? Because it, it sounds like quite a fuzzy time. It was. It was like a. It was like being in a cloud, mm. and very gradually the clouds started to clear, and you got like a better sense of what was going on. Um, for the whole month, I didn't know. Like I, I was apparently learning how to walk and talk again but I don't remember how to do that and I remember like at the time I apparently remembered who my mum was and my dad and my boyfriend and like you remember things from your long-term memory but you don't really remember things from day to day so that's why I don't have any um, like I couldn't encode any new memories um, from that time so I don't remember it at all right and um, and then eventually you know, the clouds started to clear and, you know, instead of me saying, oh, you know, I'd, maybe the Olympics is still a possibility. I don't know. We'll see how we go over the next few weeks to, you know, this is going to be with me for 10 years down the track. And here I am 10 years down the track. Yeah. Um, when, what was it like, I guess, when that realization was becoming clear that this was something that wasn't just about your sport, but about just your life and quality of life? Yeah, that that probably, I think, think that probably came after I came out of hospital and even after I finished, you know, I did six months of outpatient rehab after that and it took me like nine months to get back to driving and then 12 months to get back to work. And so sort of by the end of that period, it, it was like, yeah, this is, this is a, a lifelong injury. This is not a six to eight week rowing rib injury that, that I can work through. Like this is going to be here forever. And I, I went, I fell in a few holes, but, um, but ultimately like it was it was something i couldn't control mm. like i i tried i just tried to stick it was hard but i tried to stick with that mantra of own controlling only the controllables mm -hmm. and you know i couldn't control going back in time and changing anything i couldn't once i figured out that i couldn't control like i i couldn't have any influence over my eye it was always going to be like this. It was always going to be light sensitive and not move properly. Like I, I could move on from that. Like it, it was, um, it was like a really hard <laughs> time of coming to realizations about what my new limitations were, mm -hmm. and and then trying to turn them around. Yeah, and and is that something that you still contend with today? Kind of trying to you know, deal or cope with limitations, I guess? Well, not so much. Like, I, um, I'm really trying here in Utah to get into mountain biking. My husband mm -hmm. is into mountain biking um, big time. And so I'm trying as well. And it is incredibly frustrating to not be the athlete that I once was. Um, and not only, you know, be 10 years post-retirement unfit at you know, sort of non-athlete, but also to deal with this left side that that tends to clench up 
when I get emotional or when I get angry at myself or when I really I'm trying really hard, it clenches up and it, you know, it, it makes it hard for me to to do what I want um, on the bike. Yeah. So, so that is, I mean, that's not, not a big deal either. The big deal is I can't, I can't keep up with my four-year-old anymore um, when he's running away from me. I can't like run after him and um, and catch him, um, which is not so much of an issue anymore because I can threaten him with my voice. But <laughs> but when he was a toddler and he didn't understand that running towards the road would freak me out. Like yeah, it, it was a sad day when I couldn't keep up with my toddler anymore. Yeah. Um, and you know, apart from that, I just have to wear. Um, sunglasses every time I go outside like mm -hmm. even going next to an open like a light window I put on my sunglasses and it's no big deal like I I probably I've tried to grow from it a lot more than I have shrink from it or whatever the opposite of grow is like yeah. um, I've, I've tried to grow from it rather than spend too much time in the hole wallowing in, in bitterness I, I've tried to make something of it. Yeah. And and how have you managed to do that? Like I know you mentioned things like having a mantra or but but are there other things that maybe facilitate the growth that you refer to? Well, to to me, I it, it's all entwined with the psychological skills that you gain through sport. Mm-hmm. So with a lot of, a lot of the, the psychological skills that you gain through sport, I mean, it's all about performance and resilience. Um, and so I reflect back on them and I remind myself that I have them. I have since done a degree, uh, not a degree, I've since done a PhD in, in the area of positive psychology. And so a lot of that didn't, it didn't make me learn new stuff. It made me realise what I had known about the power of gratitude, for example. Mm -hmm. um, and and so, like, to me, it's I I have just tried to combine these psychological skills that result in resilience, performance, and well-being into something that I, you know, I want. I want younger athletes to know this as well. Yeah. yeah, I mean, and that sounds like a rather impressive accomplishment, you know, getting a PhD given what I'm sure must be, you know, some debilitating symptoms cognitively or otherwise. Yeah. From, My from memory was so bad at the beginning, like it's still pretty bad, but it's so bad at the beginning. Yeah, was that, you know, like, it, I, I know, doing a PhD has its challenges and ups and downs as well. So, I mean, I guess in, in terms of the fact that you had such a severe brain injury, would you say that that, you know, made concentrating difficult or like, you know, I don't know, in terms of just your symptomology, did that make the challenges of a PhD maybe all the more difficult or? Well, I, um, you know, I, I always, thought back to my Olympic, my, my um, sporting career and achieving the Olympics from that. You know, I was written off early in my career. I was 
crappy at sports at school. I was in the veggie PE class at school. And, mm-hmm. um, and I reflect back on that and, and, you know, well, I made the Olympic, like, because I'd worked hard and I got there and I learned stuff along the way and I, I made the Olympics. And so, like, I sort of thought about it in the same way. Well, I have a brain injury. I, you know, there, there are memory problems and concentration problems and, um, mm-hmm. and that sort of thing. But if I did that as a veggie PE class, if a veggie PE girl could make the Olympics, then the brain injured girl can get a PhD. Yeah. So it sounds like you, you kind of reflect and use your experiences in sport to remind you of the things that you're capable of doing and, and ways of moving forward. Yes, yeah. absolutely. And you, you mentioned this idea of, of growth. And, and I'm wondering if you can expand or articulate on how you feel that you've maybe grown as a consequence of either, you know, your uh, traumatic brain injury or just some of the challenges that you've gone through through sport. Yeah, I I guess it it's all tied up with meaning. Like once you you can ascribe a meaning to it, um, like. You know, I I it, I don't know whether this is a meaning, but um, you know, I re, I look back on um our result in Beijing, and you know, I ascribe a meaning to it now, mm-hmm. and that is, if I had won gold back then. I would have married the the guy who I was engaged to at the time and probably had a kid with him and probably been divorced by now. And, um, you know, I would have never met my now husband and had had my son. Mm -hmm. If I had one goal then, I wouldn't have the wonderful things that I have now. And so that's a way of, I guess, ascribing meaning to something which makes it easier to deal with. Yeah. And um, and then in terms of my uh, my brain injury and my huge accident that ended my career, it was a little bit harder to make meaning out of that. But I feel like, you know, uh, these past 10 years, you know, I've had this journey through, um, you know, revisiting my psychology education and ending, ending up with a PhD and studying positive psychology, especially where intersects with education and you know looking at kids that age in the adolescent age group where I feel like I had so much personal growth in my life and maybe you know at the moment this is what I'm doing at the moment is trying to um, bring together my knowledge and experience in a way that can teach and help um, that age group or maybe a little bit higher than that, that age group um you know through in their in their sport and you know i want to shortcut all of the stuff that i learned in my in sport right and helps you at you know with your resilience performance and well-being and sets up the foundations for your life yeah so you know given all of these experiences in some ways it sounds like they contribute to your ability now to to share those experiences to provide that education to youth 
uh, almost like, you know, if, if they could go back in time and have the benefit of the experience that you have, um, but now you have that ability to share that knowledge and information based on the experience. Um, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um, would um, maybe on that note, um, you can uh, offer or suggest any uh, piece of advice to an injured athlete and what that might be. Only control the controllable. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, it's easier said than done, um, but it takes, takes practice and, you know, like I think also, I think it's okay to fall in a hole as long as you can, you, you know that you can climb your way back out when it's time. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I think there's something to being allowed to fall in the hole and just wallow there for a little bit. Like I remember um, after my accident, like my really bad accident, my now husband <laughs> had was, was saying, you know, come on, Amber, it's like, it's been six months you know, don't, don't you think you can, um, don't you think you, you should stop thinking about it and stop ruminating on it and just, you know, get on with the job. And I'm like, no, I am not over it yet. This is a shit thing that's happened to me. Yeah. And I want to, I, I feel like you need to um, validate my feelings in letting me be in the hole. I can come out, I will climb out, just give me give me time to be down here and just go away. Yeah, so ha having the time just to, um, you know, go through the emotions that one experiences is important. Yeah, I mean, that, that, was, that was important for that accident. That was an accident that was career ending and, you know, required a big shift in what I was doing, but, if I had done that, if I had remained in the hole um, after the bike accident a hundred days before the Athens Olympics, I wouldn't have made the start line at Athens. So, so you do, you know, it, it is particular to the situation, but I think a lot of people around an injured athlete might, um, might think it's all about quick, get out of the hole, quick, move on, you know, and it, it, if you force that it invalidates their feelings of um of like yeah this is this is shit this is i'm really sorry that this happened to you and um yeah yeah I, so getting those feelings legitimized from others can be helpful it sounds like yeah it almost helps you move on like once you have the the legitimization or the the acknowledgement that you you know, this is, this is crappy. I'm, this is, this must be really hard for you. Right. Like right. that makes it easier to move on, or at least it did for me in that situation with that injury. Yeah. So would you say it's important for athletes to get a certain types of support for their injury recovery? Oh yeah. If, if um, I couldn't imagine getting through the things that I did without having support, like beyond injury, you, like, yeah, but especially injury, yeah. you, you know, having the right medical support, familial support, friendship support, teammate support, coach support. I managed to get through without that last one, but uh, you know, that's another story. Yeah. Um, 
Well, and, and you've talked talk about, uh, you know, some of the different, I guess, uh, facets of, of your performance and your experience. And, and certainly it sounds like that support is instrumental. Um, would, uh, would you say there are any uh, benefits to injury? I mean, we talked a little bit about, or you mentioned that idea of growth and sort of how you've, um, I guess, worked to experience it. Would, would you say there are benefits or maybe, I don't know if that's the right descriptor or characterization? Um, I, I'm not sure. I, you know, I'm, I'm particularly not sure about my injuries, especially um, the big ones. Definitely the, the smaller injuries and the pain and, and that sort of management, I think made me a smarter athlete. But, um, and, and also it gave me, like, eventually it gave me the confidence to, you know, to know my body, to have the insight and to speak up when it was needed and that sort of thing. But, um, but also I, I saw it so many times in other people, especially because this rib injury was the really common injury in rowing, that, like, a lot of the, the people that were all... It, they always seemed to be injured with, you know, they would always have a rowing stress fracture and you just, you know, they might be training in another state and you would hear about, about them and go, oh, yeah, you know, I'll just write her off for, um, for nationals coming up. And then at nationals, she would be incredibly strong. So, like, it didn't really seem to correlate. Like, that's what I learned from watching other people deal with these rib stress fractures six to eight week injuries throughout my career is that you couldn't ever ascribe them as a decisive factor in somebody yeah. else's yeah it also sounds though like would you say people are quick to write people off maybe prematurely or uh, you know that well yeah as, a, as an athlete as a um, competitor against them you know you wanted to ascribe yourself something that would give you an advantage um, on on the when you were um, on the course uh, sure. racing your race, but um, yeah, so but maybe I did it a little bit too easily, and I learnt after a little while to that a six to eight week injury, while bad, and while you miss a fair bit of training, especially in in rowing, from that it wasn't it wasn't a huge performance decrease that you maybe had hoped for in your competitors at least right right um i just want to say thanks for sharing all your experiences and and insights amber and and obviously you you have a wealth of experience and and have competed at such a high level so consistently or over a long period of time so um, i know your comments will certainly resonate with anyone who watches our discussion so Thank you for taking the time to speak with me. No problem. We, well, I always find it so easy to speak to you. We've been speaking for a long time now. Yeah, I certainly enjoy our conversation. And, you know, it's nice to have the chance to um, get back in touch with certainly my Australian experiences. And, and uh, yeah. Thank and you, you understand my accent. Yeah, definitely. Um, thanks for, for taking the time to speak. That's right. And thank you very much for um, everything you've done of late as well.